Well, I, I heard about the church. In fact, the church board reported 120 members, and they had just about 120 coming in attendance. Uh, they didn't have a permanent building. They were functioning out of temporary space, a small room uh, that they had to rent in the city. Uh, they were planning, they were in the midst of selecting leadership and, and really focusing on administrative kinds of things. Uh, they were getting discouraged because not much was going on in the life of the church and through them. They had the very little money as a church, few, uh, few people, and a lot of fear. And, and one of the questions was, they had the task of reaching the community outside of them, outside the walls, but was there any room that that culture was making for the message that was being presented? Was their message relevant? And so they were disillusioned and they were questioning and struggling. Does that sound familiar? It may sound a little bit like our story, but it is the original story of the original church. Those 120 gathered. And in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Acts, we know that these were good people. It says in the Scripture, as I read it, that these were God-fearing people. God-fearing Jews. God-fearing converts that weren't Jews. They were Gentiles. And they were wondering, we know the truth that Christ died for us. We know that we've been forgiven of our sin. We know that Jesus bodily came up from death and there was a resurrection. But now what? Do we have really what it takes to live out what he said as his last words, to make disciples, to go into all nations, baptizing and teaching? They remembered the words of Jesus. They did remember those words. He talked of two baptisms. In fact, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1 of Acts, Luke records the book of Acts, and he's very detailed, and he reminds us of the words of Jesus. As they were eating together, he gave them this command. He said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The, the whole idea is he, he teased it. <laughs> he really did. He teased it and said, look, coming is one that will change your life. It is my spirit. And, and I wonder if they went back, as, as he was talking about baptism, they were referencing back in their mind's eye to John and how John baptized in water is a public statement of a faith that that person had. But now he's talking about another baptism, a baptism of the Spirit. 
and it's coming. I wonder if they hearkened back to John 14, where Jesus almost gave what was like his own eulogy, where he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you know the place where I'm going. Do not be afraid. I will take you to that place. And then he went on to say, I have an advocate for you, a comforter, the Holy Spirit. And so as they were coming together, as they joined together, so much was going on around that 120. As they were holed up in this room, it was the festival of Pentecost. Pentecost is a little bit farther down the calendar from Passover. And it was a celebration of like, you would say, harvest, where people in that uh, agricultural community would come and from distant lands and bring their offering, bring their first fruits to Jerusalem. And so they'd make this journey. And so people from all over the known world had converged at this one place. And God in His providence, when all of this uh, diversity, and it says nations from every place under heaven, Scripture says, were represented in this moment, that the Holy Spirit would come down on these 120, And they would experience the empowering of what it means to be birthed as the church. And there were three manifestations, and I want us to take a look at that as uh, as we gather today. One is the wind. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. A rushing Wind blew through. You know, the word wind is really related to an Old Testament word, the same word that was used in describing the breath of life coming into a human being. You ever heard somebody say, I am winded? (laughs) That there's a connection between this violent wind and the breath. We breathe. And you think of the human being that God gave life to. And he formed us from the dust, from the, from the earth, and breathed a wind of life into us. One person, then another, then another. Each person is valued by God. Each person has been given breath, no matter who they are, from God, and they have value. Here is a discouraged, despondent group of folks that are wondering, was it worth it to follow Jesus? Gathered together, and a rushing wind blew through that place. I still love that old song by Keith Green, Rushing wind blow through this temple, blowing out the dust within. 
Come and fill me with your Holy Spirit. What today needs to be blown from this temple? And it is my prayer that we sense violent in the good way, wind of the Spirit in our lives, instilling us with vitality in life. How many were around in 1974 here in central Kentucky? 1974. April 3rd. You remember what happened, Mike, on April 3rd? I remember. Anybody? 1974. The tornadoes that whipped through. Some of you may remember. Martha, were you in central Kentucky at that time? Yeah. And so you remember, and I remember, and I... I was 12 years old, and I remember my parents saying, get in the basement. The storms are coming. And my dad would t- dial in WHAS in Louisville. And there were reports of you know, cars being tossed to and fro and buildings coming down and stamping ground and Xenia, Ohio being wiped out. And I, and I think about how wind in and of itself is not bad intrinsically. It can cause great damage if it's out of control. But when harvested and directed and channeled, it can do great things. It can provide energy and refreshment and vitality. And so I believe there's a connection between Acts chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 2. That God wants to breathe life into each of us spiritually and as a church. And one of the manifestations in the birth of the church was a rushing wind. May it blow through this place. The other, tongues of fire. Now we can't always connect the dots to the Old Testament. And the first example we did, in the second one I think we can as well. We see the words from Acts 2, verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Where else did we see fire in the Scriptures? I think of Moses. Remember, Moses was on the backside of Egypt. He was disillusioned and despondent and and depressed. And he was like, God, I'm done with these stiff-necked people. (laughs) That's what he said in the Scripture. And, and, And they're cantankerous. They're hard to be contented. They're just difficult. I am just simply going to go and be a shepherd and and have a safe, comfortable, quiet life. And you remember, it was a holy moment. God said, come. And it was a fire. And what we know about that fire was it was not consumed. God called from that fire and said, Come, Moses, I want you to set my people free. And from that moment on, there was passion. There were mistakes. But there was passion connected to a moment of revitalization of new life and renewal with fire. And and what's interesting is in the New Testament in chapter 2 in Acts here, we find that fire rested on each of them. I want to talk about that just for a moment. I've had fire rest on me, uh, and it wasn't good. 
I, I uh, you know, I got the, uh, I, I'm an Eagle Scout, and I, I had the fire safety merit badge, but it didn't seem to show up at the first part of my marriage. I remember like two or three years into our marriage, uh, we had a fireplace, and I thought, I'm going to be romantic here. I'm going to build my wife a fire. And so I, we had, you know, the chimney and the fireplace, and, and maybe some of you heard me tell this story, and, and, and I got the logs in the fireplace, and I said, hey, baby, I'm going to build you a fire. And uh, got got some newspaper and started the newspaper, stuck it up under the wood, and can't remember if I opened the damper or not, and, and stuck it up in the wood, and nothing was happening. So I thought, you know, I need to make this happen, and I need to make it happen quicker than it's going to happen by using newspaper. And so I got some kerosene. And poured the kerosene on the logs. And let's just say there was something that happened. Fumes and gases and there was blowback. And it started to catch the mantle on fire. And the next thing I know, I don't have any eyebrows or eyelashes. How romantic is that? You know, you go back to church and it's like, what happened to you, preacher? I experienced Pentecost, you know. I, and so I, fire, like wind, if not harnessed correctly, can be devastating. But oh, if it is channeled in good ways. It says tongues of fire rested on all of them. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in the Old Testament narrative where the bush is burning, it really is kind of a singular moment. Moses, I want you to go, and I want you to then lead a group of people. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2, we find that the tongues from God, from heaven, fall on, it says they were divided, on each person. That means that you're anointed, and you're anointed, and you're anointed, and you're anointed. Hopefully I'm anointed to serve with that same fire, that same calling, that same urgency to make a difference in people's lives in the name of Jesus Christ. So this fire came in a plural way. It rested on all of them. And then finally it says that they were gathered that 120 and they were very focused on, on themselves and wondering if their message made a difference and the wind blew through and the tongues of fire fell upon them on that birthday. And it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it says... As they were filled, there were tongues spoken, languages. And all of these folks were gathered in Jerusalem. God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, as they were gathered together, they were bewildered, because each one heard their own language being spoken. All right, this is unscripted. Kaluba. 
How many languages do you know? Will you hold up the fingers? How many languages? Five languages, okay? How appropriate. He didn't know I was going to ask him that. Five languages. Now think about this a minute. You know, obviously, some more of what we'd say common or global languages, but there were some that were, you know, one that's indigenous to your area, right? Well, the beautiful thing about this is that people were speaking languages and they were hearing the good news of the gospel in a discernible way in languages that were indigenous to them. And they were like, how is it that we are hearing this wonderful news in our own language? You ever heard somebody say, he just speaks my language? (laughs) Well, in a literal sense, that was evangelism. And I I just want to take a moment to say that one great theologian said, a great preacher is one that holds the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. I think this is very relevant for us today. It said, people from every nation under heaven. And what this is saying to me is that the gospel is for everyone. And that God values every single person, no matter who they are no matter what their race may be, what, no matter what their socioeconomic level may be, God loves. He made each one of us, it says, imago Dei in the Old Testament. I made them in my image. And so when I look you in the face, in many ways I'm looking into the face of God. Wasn't that a beautiful moment when Esau and Jacob, brothers that were estranged, Esau says to his brother, who was so unjust and unjust to him, in a moment of reconciliation said, when I look into your face, I see the face of God. We have seen the headlines. We have seen the hideous moment in Minneapolis where a police officer had poor judgment. We have seen the reaction. I was talking to a law enforcement person that's related to one of the two churches that I'm serving. And he he brought real insight, and yet there was a sense in which he understands how all of us bring a bias to whatever we do. And we talked about how God wants us to eliminate that. That we are to see everybody as equal and to treat people justly. And this is uncomfortable to even talk about. But I think it's important, like the 120 who were wondering, 
is there any room for the message of the gospel to be received outside the walls of this building that we're in? I think the same question is being asked of us as a church. Um, I remember Delia's done a great job in the roles that she has played, and one of them is being a great mama. And one of the things that she uh, she worked with our children on, and we both did, is use your words. Use your words. You know, like maybe when Jordan would get real frustrated and he'd throw something, you know, mad at his sister or something, we'd say, use your, use your words. You know? <laughs> and George Floyd used his words. He said, I, I can't, I can't, I can't breathe. And, and I, I think it's important for all of us responding to that to use our words carefully, nonviolently, to speak for justice, but to speak well. And so as followers of Jesus, I think our paradigm is to celebrate every nation under heaven. God is real big on diversity. Just look at us. And I think part of the message of Pentecost is just that. That our message to the world is to model what Jesus said and did. Blessed are the peacemakers. That wasn't just a sermon on a mountain. It was his way of life. So, the question at the end of this text, I'm going to wrap up here. They all asked in bewilderment, what does this mean? I think it means everything. I think for Christ's church, the message is clear related to issues of justice, but also evangelism in the sense that God has given us power and an anointing to do what we need to do. I think the only question is, are we willing to do it? And so is Pentecost for us just simply a remembrance? Or is it something we're willing to reenact? Let's pray together.